As you take your seats, hopefully you know that we're going to be continuing in the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians. Uh, This evening we're starting chapter 3 of this tiny epistle, looking at verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Let's go before the Lord in prayer one more time and then we'll hear what he has for us in his word. Almighty God giver of every good and perfect thing. Father, we ask for your help. We pray that you would enable us to understand your word, to benefit from it, to be convicted in the ways that we need to be convicted, and to be edified in the ways that we need to be edified. Father, we pray for any who might be here who do not yet know Christ truly and savingly, uh, that this would be the hour that upon the hearing of God's word, that the Spirit would take that sword and divide and pierce and transform. And Father, we pray not all that differently for us as your saints. Father, we pray that it would transform us as well. Father, that you would give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding, but also that through the hearing of your word preached, that you would grow us in love of God and neighbor and obedience, obedience to your word and law. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, this is indeed God's unchanging, authoritative word. Hear it now. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Now, if you recall, it's been a couple weeks, maybe a few, uh, where we left off last time. Uh, Paul, in chapter 2, was kind of really, I mean, I don't know how to say it other than really starting to go after the false teachers at the church in Colossae. Uh, While he had been for a chapter and a half kind of just referencing them and mentioning them, but not really putting any meat on the bone, so to speak, uh, he really uh, didn't pull any of his punches towards the end there of chapter 2. We found out that they were pushing all sorts of weird and strange things, trying to add them on to the gospel that the Christians there had received. They were pushing uh, ceremonial externals, focusing on rigorous external codes of religious conduct, hyping up spiritual experiences, claiming that it was in these things and these things alone that one found true religion. All of these outward experiences, all these outward doings and goings and comings. But this is not biblical Christianity. This is not the biblical gospel. It's certainly not the gospel that we've received from Paul or that we're going to receive from Paul tonight. They were peddling a cheap knockoff. They were promising fulfillment and freedom, but only really offering that which would further enslave and bring down. They were trying to make it seem that they were offering a religion that would elevate the people there in the church a step above and a step beyond their peers and those around them. But in reality, what they were teaching rose no higher than earth or hell itself. Now, these false teachers, we could give them credit where credit is due, I guess, and at least saying that they were comprehensive. I mean, really, as you look at the list there in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through the end of the chapter in verse 23... 
man, they had a teaching, it seems, that affected and touched every aspect of a person's day-to-day life. They were comprehensive in their approach and teachings. And so Paul, in our passage today, is going to move beyond just critiquing those false teachings to actually being comprehensive himself and showing what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ better in a likewise comprehensive manner and fashion. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul, in his ongoing list of warnings, told us that the false teachers had, in effect, severed themselves from Christ, who is the head. But that is not the case we read tonight for believers, for those who are truly a part of Christ's church. While false teachers have severed themselves from the head, we read of Christians this evening that we have been raised with Christ, verse 1. Verse 3, that we have died with Christ. Uh, Later on in verse 3, that our lives are hidden with Christ. And in verse 4, that when Christ, who is our life, appears, that we will appear with Him. How opposite this picture. They have severed themselves, but could we be possibly any more united than that? Well, the false teachers are stuck in the world. Stuck in the manners and the goings and the practices of this earth and the earth below. There's a sense, Christian Paul is saying, in which you are already in heaven. You have been raised with your Christ. And therefore, your home is where he is. Do you see how comprehensive Paul is being? He's not pulling his punches. He's doubling down. Paul is covering for the Christian our past, our present, and our future. Our past, our present, and our future. You're going to find all three of those tenses here in this text. You have been raised with Christ. There's your past. Your life is hidden with Christ. There's your present. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's your future. And in all three, do you notice what Paul is focusing on? He focuses on the resurrection. Your past your present, and your future. What what makes it better than what the false teachers are offering is that it is all now covered in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Not do this and don't do that. Don't, Don't touch this and consume this and follow this holiday and don't follow that holiday. Forget all of that. It is consumed and covered past, present, and future in the resurrection of Christ. It all hinges on the resurrection. Raised with Christ, past, hidden with Christ, present when Christ appears you also will in glory future this is the heavenly mindset as opposed to the earthly demonic elemental mindset that the false teachers are bringing and pushing and and giving this is your identity now and so if if we're going to do this right if we're going to obey God's word that we read in Colossians 2 6 and walk in him We have to know who we are in Him. And who we are is one who has been raised. And so, if we're going to have the heavenly mindset that we need to have ever before us, then we need to keep in our minds, keep at the forefront of our heads, these three things. First, the resurrection in regard to our past. Secondly, the resurrection in regard to our present. And third and finally, the resurrection in regard to to our future. And so we read in verse 1 and in a little bit of part of verse 3, we're told there by Paul, you have been raised with Christ. 
And immediately, that's a little bit interesting. We, we, we know as good Christians, there's going to come a day where we will be raised. But Paul points out here, there's a sense, brother and sister, in which you've already been raised. You have already died. You have already been raised. Uh, Paul places that if-then in front of the statement to make this chasm and divide between us and the false teachers all the more clear. But notice, both the statements are in the past tense. You have been raised. You have died. How? How on earth has that happened? Well, it's with Christ. It's only with Christ that this is done. That this is even considerable or even possible. If not for his resurrection, we certainly wouldn't have one. His had to come first. His had to pave the way. It is his resurrection that proves, that shows us, that gives us any hope that we have one at all. Not everybody's on the same page about this, sadly. The infamous and sadly influential 20th century theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, He's famous, but not for good reasons. He said, quote, If the bones of the dead Jesus were discovered tomorrow in a Palestinian tomb, all the essentials of Christianity would remain unchanged. He couldn't possibly be more wrong. I mean, that's just the most goofy... I mean, just... I. That's me being nice. I want to be a little bit more mean. It makes no sense. And it's the polar opposite of what Paul tells us. This could not be more wrong. If the bones of Christ were truly found tomorrow and it was somehow authenticated, brothers and sisters, there would be a billion more places on this planet that would make more sense for you to be than here right now. Right? It doesn't make any sense because if that happened, there is no Christianity. The resurrection of Christ is not some secondary or tertiary doctrine of the Christian faith. There's a lot of things that I like to call family disagreements. You know, when I'm talking with our students, they have lots of friends that are of this denomination or that denomination, and they, they come with questions, you know, why, why is it that they believe this? Is that okay? What's, what's wrong with that? And, and very early on, I had to give them uh, the distinction, right? There has to be a line drawn somewhere. There are a lot of disagreements that we can think of as family disagreements. For instance, my whole life I grew up a Baptist. Most of my family and friends are still Baptist. They would adamantly disagree with me on the doctrine of baptism. I think they're wrong. <laughs> That's why I'm here and not preaching in one of their pulpits. But we're going to be together in heaven. It's a family disagreement. Uh, there are those who, who would say uh, uh, that we should only sing the Psalms in public worship. That all we should sing is the 150 psalms that Christ has given us. Now, I think we should sing the psalms, but I think it's more than okay for us to sing the hymns that we have in our book. Right? But these are family disagreements. But this is not one of those. This is, if there was ever a line to be drawn, this is it. This is it. It is the core essential tenet of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, we have nothing else. We have no religion. We have no faith. The fact that the God-man Jesus Christ died a bodily death on the cross, was buried for three days, and then bodily rose again, and then walked the earth bodily for 40 days before ascending into heaven evermore as the God-man Christ Jesus, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. That is Christianity. Every other doctrine we have builds upon that or falls if that falls. This is the cornerstone of our faith. 
Think about this, brothers and sisters. What, what comprises the majority of the Apostles' Creed? A document which has been confessed by the church of all various shades and colors and denominations and flavors for almost its entire 2,000-year history. What do we confess? I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That takes up two-thirds of the Apostles' Creed for a reason. There is no Christianity if there is no bodily resurrection of Christ. I don't get, this shouldn't be controversial. This shouldn't be up for debate. You either believe it or you don't. And if you don't, you're not a Christian. There isn't some third weird middle category. Paul himself wrote, if Christ has not raised, then brothers and sisters, your faith and my faith is in vain. My preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith and my faith is futile. You are still in your sins and we above all people, Paul says, should be pitied. If we somehow found out tomorrow that Christ hadn't been raised, we, more than any other group of people on the planet, should be a people that others feel sorry for. Because it means we've wasted our lives. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time we've cracked open the Word, every time we've prayed, every time we've evangelized, it's all for nothing if Christ be not raised. But Christ was raised. Christ was raised. And that's not just something that we take on blind faith, is it? Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that we can objectively, factually, historically know that Christ bodily rose again as a trustworthy, historical fact. Why? He fulfilled hundreds, hundreds of specific prophecies. He appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. And how many of the apostles died professing this all the way to their grave? 11 out of the 12, if they were lying, what did they gain? <laughs> what, what benefit, what earthly perk came with this lie? Nothing. I don't know if you like watching judge and jury shows as much as I do. It's, it's a guilty pleasure. I don't know why, uh, but I always seem to find them. Um, let me tell you what I've never seen. I've never seen someone have more than two eyewitnesses corroborate the same story and the person get off innocent. It, it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. 500 eyewitnesses. The resurrection of Christ is a fact. Christ has been raised. And therefore, Paul writes in Colossians 3, so have you. So have you. Now you heard me. Not you will be raised. That's true too. We're going to get to that in a moment. That's a whole point. But, but you have been raised. Past tense. There is a sense in which it's already taken place. By our union with Christ through His Holy Spirit. As Christ died, so too you died. As Christ has been raised, so too you have been raised. As Paul already said in chapter 2 verses 12 through 13, we were buried with Him, past tense, and past tense made alive together with Him. It's, it's already happened. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's already happened. Now, what does it mean that we've died with him? What, what does this mean for you and I? 
What does this accomplish for us? That we've died with him, that we've been raised with him. Well, put it simply, it means that you're no longer in bondage. You are no longer enslaved to the tyrannical dominion of sin. You were, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of the world, the following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience. You were children of wrath. But there's that phrase I love again, but God. But God made us past tense alive together with Christ. Meaning all of that that was true is true no longer. It is gone. It is in your past. It is finished. Those and sisters... It's, it's of highest importance that we understand this. That we could not ever hope to pay the debt we owed to gain our freedom and redemption. Gold and silver would not suffice. The only currency acceptable was blood. The debt only could be paid in death. And so Christ died. In your stead and in mine. And through that union, through our union with Christ, when he died, we died. And our debts were paid in full. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read this in length because it's worth it. God's word is good enough. Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Paul, Paul is anticipating what some might say. If we've been saved by grace through faith, then let's live it up. Right? If God seems to be in such a forgiving mood, let's give him some reasons to be forgiving. But he says, by no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We were buried with him in death so that we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So then if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So now you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what do we do then? He says, let sin therefore no longer reign in your mortal body. For sin will have no longer dominion over you. Now this doesn't mean the Christian doesn't sin. We're going to struggle with sin and fight with sin till the day that we either die and meet him in heaven or he comes down and brings it to us. But it does mean that unlike the unregenerate, non-believing folk who can only sin because they're enslaved to it, the Christian can now choose to obey. We now have the freedom to choose to walk in Christ. So do it. What slave gets their freedom and choose to stay with the master? It doesn't happen. Yet how often do Christians do that very thing? You have been freed, so run free and do the things that a free man does. That old you, that old man of sin, he's dead. She's dead. They've been crucified with Christ, Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. That old you, that old sinful nature, that alienation and shame that we spoke on this morning. It's dead. It's gone. It's in the past. And so, we consider the resurrection in regard to our past. You have been raised with Christ. 
But we also, secondly, need to consider the resurrection in regard to our present. In regard to our present. Paul writes in verse 3, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is, in a sense, the present reality, the present effect of that past reality of you having died with Christ. This is what is now happening. It's the result of what we've just covered, of that bondage of sin being broken. Now, brother and sister, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. As Paul said in Galatians, he was, past tense, crucified with Christ, so that now, present tense, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. They go together. They work together. You can't have one without the other. Your life is hidden with Christ. What does this word mean? Hidden comes from the Greek word, crypto. Uh, crypto, we... I, our English word crypto, like that something's cryptic, mysterious, hidden, it comes from this same idea, this same place. It literally means to hide or to conceal or to literally uh, to escape notice. And there's two senses that we could take this, two, two understandings that we could take away from this passage. Uh, for every commentary I read that went with one, another went with the next. But, but I don't think this is an either or situation. I think it's a both and. Uh, there's a horizontal aspect and a vertical aspect to this being hidden in Christ. And so we're going to consider both. And so first, let's think about the vertical aspect of being hidden with Christ. What this means in regard to how God sees you and me. Your life is hidden with Christ. Remember, to hide, to conceal, to escape notice. And so, because of your union with Christ, when God considers you, brother and sister... When God considers you, he considers no longer your sin, your trespasses, your failures, your shortcomings, your shame. But rather he considers Christ and his perfect, obedient righteousness. If you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, then your life and all of its sins, all of its failures, all of its shortcomings, all of those aspects that you're embarrassed about are hidden with Christ, concealed, they're covered Consider this. As God killed an animal in the garden to make a covering for Adam and Eve, so too God killed His Son, whose blood now makes a covering for you and for me. This is the picture. Your life is hidden with Christ. But let's also consider the horizontal aspect to this. What, what this means in regard uh, to your life and how you live it and how it should be seen to others. Your life is hidden with Christ. Yet again, what does the word mean? Uh, to hide, to conceal, to escape notice. So what does this mean? Well, brothers and sisters, it means you and I aren't the main character in this story. We're not the main character. It's not about you. It's not about me. In fact, we find here in God's word is that the believer's life should be so focused on Christ, so entranced with Christ, so head over heels in love with Christ that they themselves and their own wants and their own desires and their own preferences, their own aspirations, their own strengths and their own weaknesses and their own identities with things such as ethnicity or race or, or, or nationality or fill in the blank, that they all become hidden, covered, Concealed, they don't matter anymore in comparison. They escape notice. 
In a culture which hyper-fixates on you making yourself known. On you making your preferences known. On you making sure to show the world who you are. In a culture filled with people which increasingly feel the need to share every little thing about themselves with the world on social media. The call and the command for the Christian is the exact polar opposite. Your life is to be hidden with Christ. Concealed. It should escape notice. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, if you're looking for a child name, there you go. Add that one to the roster. Uh, and he's an 18th century minister. Uh, he was a part of the group known as the Moravians and considered by many a Protestant and a reformer in his own right. Uh, he has a famous quote where he said that we should aspire in our lives to, quote, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That that should be the aspiration of every Christian. To preach the gospel, to die, and to be forgotten. It's hard for our sinful hearts to hear, isn't it? But it seems to me to be through and through biblical. We should aim to be hidden, to escape notice, and instead to make Christ all the more seen and known. Now, this is hard. This is difficult. So how do we do this? How do we get better at it, Pastor? Well, we're commanded in the text here to do two things to help us with this. To seek and to set. To seek and to set. Can't you tell Paul is a pastor? He even started him with the same letter. To seek and to set. Paul tells us, seek the things which are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth. So we're to seek the things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so we could ask ourselves this question. What is your treasure? What is your heart seeking? What is it that you long for and, and aspire after? For some, it's reputation. For others, wealth, prestige, women, power. Regardless of what we could fill in the blanket, none of it's anything more than fool's gold, than monopoly money at the end of the day. We're to seek not earthly treasure, but heavenly we're to follow the commandment of Christ in Matthew 6 to not lay up for ourselves uh, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, uh, but where the thief can break in and steal, but rather we're to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. We're to say, seek the things which are above because it's only those things which are above of heavenly value that have any real value at all, that will last, that are sure and certain. And how can we know that? How can we know that they'll last? How can we know that they're certain? Because Look who's there. Christ is there, seated on his throne. Right? I, I've always found it interesting. I, I never considered it until I visited other countries. But when you, when you travel out of the United States and you go to any other country that I've been to, China, Peru, Mexico, and you walk into a bank, there are dudes out front with, I mean, fully automatic AK-47s, bulletproof vest at every bank. Every single bank I went to in China, Peru, or Mexico armed guards. Now you could say, well, that's because those countries are less safe. Maybe, but have you ever been to Memphis or Jackson? So I don't really know if that's like an argument. It's just silly to me that in our country we have such a false sense of security that even in our worst, most dangerous portions of our worst, most dangerous cities, we just like hope the security cameras will ward people off. That doesn't give me much hope. Every time I saw that in China or Peru, I thought to myself, man, I would have some confidence of my money being stored in that bank, right? Nobody's going to mess around and find out there. 
Why can you know, brother and sister, that your heavenly treasures will be kept for you? Because look who stands guard. Christ, your heavenly, fearsome king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, sits high and lifted up on his throne, surveys all, sees all, is sovereign over all. Seek Christ and his glory above all else, for he alone is the true treasure. Seek. We're also to set. We're to set our minds on things which are above, not on things that are on earth. We're to do as we're told in Hebrews and fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter, the starter and the finisher of our race. Well, how do we do this? We do it primarily. I think there's no way to read this passage other than to see this command to set as a call to dedicate ourselves to prayer and the reading of the word. Prayer and the reading of the word. We don't pray, brothers and sisters, to change God's mind. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is not a man that he should lie. We don't pray to change God's mind, but rather we pray to align our hearts with his will until his will is our highest goal, our highest endeavor. And so pray. You want to set your heart, set your mind on that which is above, not that which is on the earth? Then pray. Pray in the morning. Pray at night. Pray in line at the grocery store. Pray while sitting in class or while working at your job. Pray when you have the time to pray lengthy, thought-out prayers and to pour your heart out to God. But pray also when all you have is a moment to just throw a quick request up to the Lord. Pray. And read the Word. How do we set our heart on that, set our mind on that which is above? We read God's Word. It's His Word which is the seed. It's His Word which has the power to save. It's His Word which is the sword of the Spirit. It's His Word which is useful for teaching and reproof and for training up in righteousness. And so read the Word. Meditate upon it. Study it. Memorize it. Hear it faithfully preached. Pray and read the Word. Set your mind on things that are above so that you may be, as the late great R.C. Sproul always used to love to say, so that your mind may be renewed. Consider the resurrection in regard to your past. You have died and you have been raised. Consider the resurrection in regard to your present. Your life is hidden in Christ. So seek and set. And third and finally, consider the resurrection in regard to your future. Paul writes in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Brothers and sisters, you are alive in Christ but you have not yet even begun to live. There is more to come, so much more, because when Christ appears, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Do you ever stop and consider how different your life is now in comparison to before Christ found you? You ever consider, I do often, I grew up with good parents, but I didn't grow up in a distinctly Christian home, and I wasn't I didn't have some, I don't have some dramatic, sometimes I get jealous. I, I don't have some dramatic conversion story, right? I was only 13 when God saved me, right? I, I wasn't murdering people and the Lord turned my life around or anything crazy like that. But it is a noticeable difference. Uh, my, my friends noticed it. My, my family noticed it. I think back often to how drastically different so quickly the Lord changed my life. And maybe you think the same thoughts from time to time. You ever consider how different it was before you were justified compared to now? Night and day. It's drastic. Well, consider then how different your life will be pre-glory versus post-glory. How much different it will be when Christ appears 
And that justification and sanctification is turned into glorification. When faith is turned to sight. And we behold him face to face. No longer in a mirror. When I think about uh, Carly being pregnant now with Nora or, or then with Liam or Sammy. It's a fun, exciting time as we've gotten to see Nora more and more kick. And as we were thinking about, man, what would Liam be like? What would Sammy be like? Now thinking, you know, what's Nora going to be like? Is she going to be calm and collected and even out the boys? Or, or is the Lord going to challenge us even more and she's going to come out and, and be keeping up with them step for step? It's exciting. It's fun. But I love them being here a whole lot more. Pregnancy was fun for me, not for Carly. This is a miserable process for her. I don't, she doesn't even need to, I'm, if she was here, I wouldn't even be using this example. It was fun for me. It's not fun for her. But it's way more fun with them being here now. Even the sleepless nights, even the getting peed on, it's so much better now that, that I can see my babies, that I get to know them, and begin to learn their personality types. Likewise, I, I loved dating Carly. I loved being engaged to her. But neither of those came close in comparison to how much I loved being her husband. Right? It would be silly to even think so. Obviously it's better. Brothers and sisters, throughout the scriptures we get this picture. That we are the betrothed bride of Christ. We're the betrothed bride of Christ. There was a practice, an ancient Jewish custom... Uh, that the way uh, a Jew would propose and become legally engaged, legally betrothed to another, is they would, the man would uh, pour his, uh, hopefully, bride-to-be a glass of wine. And if she took it up and drank, that was her formally accepting. The moment she took and drank of that cup, she was recognizing, I am now formally, legally engaged to be married to this man. Christ, did he not do the same as he shed his blood for us? And as he drank the cup of the wrath of God down to its bottom drag, we are now betrothed, engaged to be his bride. It's great. We should be thankful for this life. We, we, we rejoice as we gather week after week after week to worship. But we do so looking forward to the consummation. Looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of that marriage when he returns because it will be unfathomably better. Be thankful for this life. Absolutely. But is it not indeed filled with turmoil and strife? Trials and tribulations, heartache, loss, sickness, death. But we press on, looking forward to what is to come. We, we do this, why? As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. Why? Because though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. And consider that. Paul's not writing this as someone who wasn't well acquainted with grief. Think of how much Paul had, had forsaken. Think of how much Paul had lost. I was talking about this with, with a brother just the other day. People, people don't think about this. Uh, one of the requirements of being a Pharisee was being married. Paul was a Pharisee before Christ came into his life. Now we don't know. Did his wife die? We don't know that's a possibility. There's also a really good possibility that his wife left him. When he converted. But Paul lost everything. Paul, Paul gave up everything. And he could write this for this light momentary affliction. That's what it is by comparison. Because it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And we can be certain of this. This isn't just a hoping, wishing for the best. We can be certain of what is to come. Why? How can we be certain? Because God has promised and as I've said a couple times already, God 
is not a man that he should lie. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. This is why we sing together, great is thy faithfulness. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. You know how we can know that? Why we can sing that with faith and certainty? Why we should trust in that? The hymn gives us the reason at the start of the hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Why? Because there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. How can you know that God awaits you in glory? With promises and peace and goodness forevermore? Because look at what he's already done in your life, brother and sister. Has he not saved you? Is he not saving you now? Then why would we ever doubt that he will bring it to completion? Is he not a good and faithful shepherd? Do you think for a moment that he would lose one of his sheep? So if we're going to have the heavenly mindset, we need to have ever before us to consider the resurrection in regard to our past. You have died. You have been raised. We should consider the resurrection in regard to our present. Your life is hidden with Christ. So seek and set and consider third and finally the resurrection in regard to your future. That when Christ appears, brothers and sisters, you will certainly also appear with him in glory. Let's go to him now in prayer. Most gracious God, Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for this word. Lord, you are good and you are faithful. You do not change. But Father, we do. We're fickle. And though we hear this and though we rejoice now, we get to Monday or Tuesday and hardship hits our life and we begin to doubt. Father, we pray it would not be so. We pray that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit and strengthen our resolve that we would not doubt this, that we would not waver. Father, we have faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Christ's name, for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen.